Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamo Metrics, and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Krista Trout-Edwards, Executive Director of the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority and Michigan Association of Land Banks Board of Directors Chair. Krista joined the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority in 2011 as part of the Neighborhood Stabilization Program team and was appointed as Executive Director in 2013. Prior to her work at the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority, she spent several years as a county planner in Indiana before relocating to Michigan and delving into the effects of foreclosure, vacancy, and abandonment on municipalities. At the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority, Krista helped develop its mission and created the framework for its efforts in community stabilization and revitalization. She works to promote and further the goals of the land bank by collaborating with local partners on innovative strategies and funding streams. Krista leads a creative team of dedicated individuals focused on building capacity around and positioning its properties for reuse and or redevelopment. Krista has 20 years of experience and a master's degree from the University of Michigan in urban and regional planning. After serving for two years as the vice chair of Michigan Association of Land Banks, she now serves as its chair. Our conversation covers land bank legislation and land bank history in Michigan and Ohio, the role of land banks in dealing with foreclosed properties and going beyond demolitions and rehabilitations, and how incremental development builds wealth in communities. And now, my conversation with Krista. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve. Today we have Krista Trout-Edwards. I'm the Executive Director of the Calhoun County Land Bank and and much more. Thanks for being on the show, Krista. Thanks, Nigel. It's um, excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Krista and I have been working together for a long time. We have, we have a good history of working together in the land bank movement in Michigan and excited to talk about all the things policy today. Maybe, Krista, a good way to start off is to just kind of introduce yourself, what your day-to-day is at the Calhoun County Land Bank, where Calhoun is, just some details about that, and then other things that you're doing. I think that you are, are you may be the lead at the Michigan Land Bank Association right now. So anything like that, like all those details, if you can get us up to date and kind of what your initiatives are right now and what you're up to in your world. Sure. Um, So yes, I am the director at the Calhoun County Land Bank Authority, and I also currently serve as the chair of the Michigan Association of Land Banks. There it is. Yes, there it is. MALB, as we like to call it. Um, (laughs) And I have been very active in MALB for the last four or five years. um, And this is, I'm I'm coming up to the end of my term there. So we're finishing Mm -hmm. out in the COVID world. But at the Land Bank Authority, we are Calhoun County, so we serve Battle Creek, Marshall, and Albion, and we are just east of Kalamazoo, which lots of folks know. Um, and we really have properties throughout the county that that come into the Land Bank, but most of them are in Battle Creek and Albion. Those are our, our concentrated areas. My personal background is I started out in planning and zoning, um, working for a county in Indiana, and I came to Michigan, went to grad school at U of M really, really wanted to focus on neighborhoods at that time, just in part because of where I grew up on the south side of Fort Wayne and a lot of the the changes and struggles I saw in my own community. And so I did that and um, actually saw you and Congressman Kildee speak at an event and sort of (laughs) the land banking bug, really, I guess. I I just thought it was a really interesting movement and it presented a lot of tools to intervene in creative ways in neighborhoods. And so 
I've been doing this for 11 years now. I've been working uh, at the Lillian Bake Authority. That's, a, that's so cool that there was an, in that early days of, of Kildy and I working together was it was an uh, was an inspirational thing i didn't realize that that's awesome <laughs> yeah it was it was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool and so so how did it go down like how did you find your way into the calhoun county land bank uh, well i went to um u of m for graduate school and i did a master's with um the flint land bank the genesee county land bank actually and we worked in a neighborhood there called mott park I got very interested in, you know, we tried to do like a little neighborhood tracking thing with GIS, which, I mean, you've built a much more sophisticated one at this point, which was, you know, kind of my graduate school dream. So we started working with the Genesee County Land Bank. And about the time that I was graduating, this job opened up and I had already also been working with the Washtenaw County Treasurer's Office on their foreclosure team. So I, I I came here specifically to work on the Neighborhood Stabilization Program, which was a huge federal in, initiative, you know, back in 2010, 2010 to 2013. And that's specifically what I came to work on at this land bank authority. And I've just stayed. Got it. Got it. And so for the folks in the audience out there that are learning about land banks or not sure what a land bank is, or there's, you know, there's, it's not always totally clear. We live in a world, you and I, where it's like, our right hand, we know what it is. But can you like kind of unpack a little bit about the policy and the process from tax delinquency to foreclosure to auction to land bank to intervent, like just like the life cycle of property, how it moves through, and then kind of the why, why the land bank participates in that process? I mean, the land bank movement really came out of the the former tax foreclosure process, which didn't really offer municipal government control of a distressed property. And so the land bank movement was really paired with PA 123, which streamlined the tax foreclosure process. So if folks do not pay their taxes for a period of three years, the county government, specifically the county treasurer's office, can foreclose on that property and take ownership of it. They then auction that property and try and earn back the delinquent taxes that were unpaid. And of course, we all know that taxes cover lots of different things in our communities, everything from schools to library to police to senior services um, and millages um, across across the board. Um, so that's that's what they try and do. Where the landmate comes in is when those properties don't sell or they are so distressed that they need some type of intervention. Those are the ones that typically come to the land bank. So we're really dealing with the most distressed properties that go through the tax foreclosure process. Um, a lot of times if someone is unable to pay their taxes, they're unable to make the standard repairs on their buildings and they may be facing other challenges. So we see a lot of a lot of properties that come to us with structural issues or deferred maintenance, we like to call that, sometimes environmental issues. And we try and intervene in those properties. We have different programs that we run in partnership and collaboration with our municipal partners is a really big part of our work. And it, it really takes a community sometimes to address some of the things that we see with the properties. Right. The way that I talk about it a little bit, it's like one of the crux components is the counterfactual. Like if the land bank wasn't there, what would happen to like, what what is a common thing that would happen to those properties? What's the without scenario on that? So without the land bank, one of the things that we've been able to do is really address residential blight. There was a significant population loss. There was income 
um, and manufacturing loss. And we saw a lot of buildings that were just sitting there um, that were becoming dangerous. They were attracting crime and other um, other things in those communities. And so we were able to take ownership of those and then demolish the ones that couldn't be saved. And so without the land bank, there wouldn't have been an entity to hold those properties, apply for grants, and then manage those grants to, to do the work. Um, we're also partnering in some of our downtown communities. We're able to hold properties and be patient property owners while a developer um, creates a development plan and puts together a capital stock. And that's really important in communities that have a depressed market. Um, it's not, you know, we're not a community where lots of folks are coming in. We're not San Francisco, right? Property values aren't really high. Um, so sometimes it takes partnership to incubate those projects. And the land bank can offer that patient ownership component. We can also clear title. Um, and we also have the ability to apply for grants and bring in additional resources. One of the other interesting things that our land bank does is that we serve as the glue between some of our municipalities. So we are currently running some grants where we're partners with both Battle Creek and Albion and we're a coalition. So we're able to approach it more from a countywide rather than just a municipality. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And it's like, the thing that I think about with that also is like, if you guys weren't there stewarding, like you just told that story about economic development, right? Like you can position in a weaker market environment, you can, you can hold a property and keep it up to code or whatever while wait, like being patient on a deal coming together. So that's like very strategic economic development in a weaker market environment. Whereas if that was left to the market, it would degrade, degrade, degrade potentially because what's that owner going to do? Continue paying taxes on something there's no revenue from? Um, right. Deferred maintenance stuff you're talking about, right? Like, yes. Like, mm-hmm. And like, like those scenarios are so, we're, we're and are so prevalent across the Midwest over the last 50 years, right? Like, right. We have, like um, the other one that I think about is like uh, speculators. If a property does have like an ounce of market value left, speculators would snap them up at the auction and then squeeze any rents out of it, never pay a dime in taxes. And if they got it for 500 bucks, they make two grand over two years and never pay a dime of taxes. That's four times their money, right? So. Right. Like that, I mean, would you guys see that unfold at all in, in Calhoun County? Absolutely. That was quite a common practice in the early days of tax foreclosures and um, the auction. So typically the treasurer would run a minimum bid auction where they were trying to get all the costs that had gone into the properties, just the back taxes, the fees, but any cost they had to put into clean up, mowing, maintenance, that kind of thing. And then there was a second auction, which was the no minimum bid auction. And for a long time, that wasn't very well regulated. And so folks were coming and they were picking up properties for very little. And they were doing exactly what you said. They were just basically letting them foreclose again in three years. But they, in the meantime, they were running them out and milking that all the profit that they could get. A lot of those auction um, processes, they, they've become much stricter. You can't purchase a property now. If, <clears throat> if you owe taxes, um, the minimum bid or the no minimum bid auction doesn't happen anymore, at least in our county, it still happens in other counties. Um, and I think another component of that is there was no real rule book for land banks as far as how do you best position a property. So there was definitely a learning curve. And when we sell properties now, especially residential properties, we sell them through a specific program called Transform This Home, 
where folks have to give us a rehab plan and they have to show us they have at least a percentage of the funds to do that rehab. And that has helped us get many more properties rehabilitated and and back on the tax roll because we're, we're really um, vetting who's buying our properties. Right. These like, I, I love that. Like these, these, these like innovative programs where you can incent the market because you have a good deal on your hands, right? Like you can offer a good deal to the market space. And if there's enough demand, enough demand in the housing or the commercial space where you can deliver a good deal, but with conditions and people take it, that's like, that's like bringing the, the hand of the market back to life, right? Yeah, we, we really strive to answer questions so that when folks find our properties on the MLS, they, they kind of know what they're getting. They can, of course, walk through them. They're allowed to take contractors through, but we do a safety inspection. We partner with our building departments at the local level, and we do a safety inspection that kind of outlines what they have to do to get an occupancy permit so that it's, it's very transparent, um, we want them to make good decisions, you know, and we competitively price our properties. We do use a real estate service and we do do market value, but it's always negotiable, especially, you know, depending on what's going on with that property and how much work needs to be done. My sense is that, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, you know, the Midwest, the heart of the Midwest, you know, since basically the internet came out and, manufacturing moved overseas, a lot of it anyway, not all, but a lot. And we went through a big kind of moment of economic transition over the last 50 years. It is so important that and people move towards jobs. So and people move out of the city centers. And so we have all these properties that are sitting there with structures on them that people used to live in. And all of our economies are in transition. And I think we're doing great now. I think the, the transformation is occurring, slow but sure on a macro level. But it's like, as we blur our eyes and look at the role of land banks over the last, whatever it's been, 20 years or 30 years or whatever in the Midwest, I feel like it's like a key cog in the wheel of like the economic revival of the Midwest, that these things are happening, right? Like right. that's that's my two cents anyway. <laughs> well, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and so, so if we move it to state policy a little bit on that thread, throw your land bank association hat on. Maybe talk about the big difference between the Ohio land bank law and the Michigan land bank law and just financing. Like how many land banks are there in the state of Michigan um, and why do land banks in Michigan have a tougher time getting resourced um, so that they can do this important work than in Ohio, like that, that difference? Sure. There's just over 40 land banks in the state of Michigan. Funding has always been a challenge for us. And when our land bank legislation was written, they weren't able to, to look forward and see, you know, the housing crisis that happened, the mortgage foreclosure crisis. And I think some assumptions were made that properties of value would come to land banks and that land banks would then either be able to sell them at a profit or when we did sell them, the taxable value would be high enough that we would get 50% of the taxes, you know, for the first five years. That's called the specific tax and that's in built into the land bank legislation that we collect 50% of the taxes for every year. And that's great if you're selling high value properties. But with the residential blight issue, a lot of land banks focused on demolition in their early years. And we sell those now vacant properties for $200. So it's not generating that anticipated amount in tax collection. It's, it's a very small part of my budget. And I know it's a small part of other land bank budgets. Um, so that's been a really tricky uh, situation for us 
especially given that we just take all of the properties that are left at the end of auction. We don't really have an out. We can't say, oh, well, we're not going to take this post-industrial site because we just don't have the finances for it. You know, we just get them all. Ohio was in the lucky position that they could come and study Michigan's legislation and then tweak it for their own state. And they started small, but they basically get a percentage of the fees of the tax collection. So they're always generating revenue and they can also say they don't want a property. So they have a couple of choices and they have a more secure funding stream. Um, and that makes them, that, that positions them better to really intervene in some of the properties and do more housing development type activities. Right. Like as a leader, like how hard is it to plan when you don't know what your revenue stream is next year? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. We have been fortunate to have really supportive treasurers here in Calhoun County and really supportive board of commissioners. And we've done some innovative things in the last couple of years to address some really big post-industrial demolition projects that we would have never been able to do without the support of the county, you know, behind us. Um, But you know, as well as I know, when those buildings are sitting out there and they're collapsing, they're affecting property value, they're affecting investment in communities. So they're not just a drain on the demolition cost, but they're actually, you know, sucking other resources out of that community. So just, you know, letting them go and not addressing them is, is not a good option, but finding the resources to address them is difficult. Right. It's like the way that like as I've been engaged with the the Michigan law for so long, it's almost like it's designed to still rely on the market that is gone. That is the reason you need to have the land bank in the first place, right? It's like the expectation of financing the land bank is based on still the theory that that property that the land bank gets is going to be in demand to the point where people are going to want the property. Where it's like land banks really end up being like the the steward of last resort of of the property in the county, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah, I think that's very well said. And they don't, properties don't end up at the land bank because, you know, they're they're easy. A lot of them have, you know, a couple of layers of issues beyond just structural. You know, there may be title issues or environmental issues. And I think those of us that work in land banks, I mean, we're problem solvers, right? Mm-hmm. We're collaborative. We're trying to figure out how to be good stewards to these properties, um, and I know that that just it takes a lot of resources that aren't always there. Right. And so is there is there any um, legislation or policy that you want to plug and talk about what your guys current approach or solution is? Is it a state level thing or what do you got going on? Um, we have been looking at the state level and we have been talking with the Treasurers Association, which is called the Michigan Association of County Treasurers, about funding options. I think right now. Of course, there was the, the recent Supreme Court ruling that just came out on Friday regarding excess proceeds at the treasurer's office. And we're still trying to understand what that means and how that might affect land banks. And I, I think it's a little early to to really understand how we're going to regroup, but those are definitely conversations that we're having right now um, and how we might be able to position land banks to have more secure funding to address these issues. You know, It's just really critical that these properties um, get attention, get resources, get back on the tax roll. And I think it's going to take more conversation, especially, you know, with the, with the new uh, ruling. And I think COVID is affecting many of us because that's also an uncertainty that is affecting future budgets. Yeah. So let's talk about, 
like your knowledge of the ruling, like it sounds like you're learning right now. Um, And then the COVID piece is an important one too, obviously. Um, And there's all these social justice things going on as well. Like it's like there's a lot coming to the front right now. I feel like land banks are well positioned as strategic partners in the center of that to get resources to the places they need to go. Right. So it's like, I do, I do. Yeah. Cool. Same page. (laughs) I don't know much about the court, the Supreme court ruling. I want to hear about that a little bit. What they ruled was that uh, when the treasurer sells a property and they make a profit, if they keep that profit, it's taking. Um, So, so that, 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 excess profit, the excess proceed really belongs to the previous owner. And it's not super clear. There's no mechanism built in to really handle that or to handle instances where maybe the the previous owner isn't interested. So I think there are a lot of questions about how that's going to work and whether or not those funds, like what's the look back on that, you know, know, how far, how far are you going to have to go back? So, you know, that, that's, still out there and we're still digesting it and we're mm-hmm. having conversations about what that means in the land bank world. The COVID piece, I think just all municipalities are concerned. We were clearly shut down for a while. We're we're in our office, but we're doing everything by appointment only and it has affected revenue coming in. So if somebody doesn't pay their taxes and their, their property goes through foreclosure, right? Like they haven't kept it up to the point where they're not paying taxes on it or they can't afford it for whatever reason, the property goes, right? They lose their deed. If there's a clear title and the land bank takes ownership, for example, and it's a clear title, clearly titled to the land bank, right? And then the the land bank puts a bunch of tax dollars or resources, however the money is raised, to make that house a beautiful rehabilitated home and sells it that previous owner who didn't pay their taxes is entitled to the to the money no the the court ruling was was about the treasurers not the landing okay Okay. all right i just want to make yeah and what the court said in my you know four days worth of of understanding and meaning about it is that if the treasurer forecloses, they're allowed to recoup their costs. So if they put money into that property on top of the taxes, that's all allowed to be recouped. Right. It's profit. But if there's a significant proceeds, you know, above and beyond that, that that funding, that chunk of funding is considered a taking at this point. So like I said, it, it's it's complicated and it's new. Um, but it, I think it definitely has the ability to impact the work that we're doing. Yeah, it's super interesting because then there's there's long-term tax revenue too. Like, is that considered? Anyway, that's interesting. So COVID and budgets, like, tell me how, tell me about, so we're like, what are we, five, six months into this pandemic now? It's starting to set the hook in terms of like what that means for revenue. And in like, tell me about that story. Like, how are you seeing, how are you experiencing or seeing in your communities? Um, and your environment, the, the impact on budgets, like how does that play out in Calhoun County? Yeah, I think the biggest thing we're seeing just right off the bat is a reduce a reduction in property sales. Um, we were well positioned in many ways. We're a small staff. Most of our, our stuff is available uh, on the cloud. So we were able to take our laptops, go home and work. But like everybody else, you know, we're not just hanging out working. We're 
we were teaching and child caring all at the same time. Um, but we were able to keep the land bank running and now we're back in the office. We're kind of flexible schedules and we're doing things by appointment. So we're able to still sell properties. And one of the things that I have been happily surprised about is there is still, people are still buying properties. People are interested in rehabbing homes. And I hope that that continues. I wasn't sure with the pandemic and the economic downturn, how property sales would be affected. But in the short term, we're still getting a lot of interest in our properties. I think what you and I and many people in our industry are concerned about are the longer terms effect. So a rise in foreclosures, both mortgage and tax foreclosure, especially if there's no relief for folks who have lost their jobs. And I, you know, I think the school component too, just the disruption in the school cycle and, you know, working parents trying to balance childcare and, and, really mental health for their kids too, right? I mean, that's a big thing. Their worlds have been upturned. How are we all going to do that and and keep everything running? You know, I think that we, we still have a ways to go in this this pandemic and we don't yeah. have all the answers yet. You and I are, are directly affected by that, right? We both have kids and we both are full-time and we have full-time spouses and young kids. And it's like, my my ability to be productive and my output, I have to find the cracks, right? Like it's a whole new adjustment and spread that across the whole population. Right. Spread that across whatever the number is, 20 to 30 million unemployed folks right now that right. if the feds don't sign a bill into law, there's not going to be a check. Holy smokes. And all those folks are, you know, they're trained to the wage. Like they, their lives live by paycheck to paycheck living a lot of a lot of folks who are unemployed right now so it's a it's a tricky spot our country is in a tricky spot we are in a tricky spot and i you know we didn't we didn't create all of this and i i realized that i'm really fortunate that we have you know internet at home and that we can do some of the things that we can do but you know it's scary and I think about how scary it is for me and how terrifying it must be for folks who have lost their jobs and or folks who haven't found um, interim a sort of childcare, you know, <laughs> solve. You know, that was really difficult to sort of find something that would work in a pandemic. And, you know, I, not everybody has been able to do that. And so I do yeah. worry about this long term stress on our communities and our neighborhoods and what it's going to look like in a couple of years from now. Right. Same, same. And like, I think that like, if there's like a silver lining to what's happening right now is that there's some level of vulnerability and like exposure of just like who you are. <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. <laughs> everybody's like a little scrappier, like on the zoom call, you know what I mean? And it's like, Oh, we're all emotionally compromised. So like, that's okay. Right. And so, like that's my two cents anyway. Like we're allowed to like show ourselves a little bit more. And I feel like there's a really good opening for growth through that. I look at like all the social equity movements right now, like like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, like these other pieces that are starting to galvanize because there's disproportionate impacts from COVID on those communities, right? And so it's like there's a way to like a health, like a health epidemic affects us more because we are systemically disadvantaged. <laughs> like, whoa, right? Like, right. let's look in the mirror, America, <laughs> right? And I, 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 I hope that 
I hope that people do look in the mirror. You know, I don't always feel like that's, that's happening. And I feel like, you know, I went to this um, social racial healing circle and I, I, I took my daughter cause I wanted her to be exposed to some of what they were saying mm-hmm. and you know, she's young. So we stayed for part of it. But one of the things that they said, and I thought that this was kind of brilliant. You know, she said, when you're having a conversation about racial healing and someone says something to you that frustrates you, you know, or you think, oh, that's not me. Take a minute to just stay in that feeling and, and, and look at it and understand it in a different way, because that's probably part of the problem, right? You know, you just go from like, oh, I'm uncomfortable now, so I'm going to get angry about it. But you shouldn't do that. You should really take a moment and and analyze that that emotion. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm I'm definitely working on similar things personally, right? And and me, like I'm like this solutions policy geek. And so I'm like, I've been innovating policy ideas, trying to anyway. And I, I'd love to get your thought a little bit on it. Like um, just because you're in it doing, you're actually still getting properties into the hands of folks and things like that. Right. Right. But I feel like, like land banks hold a key role right now because like a lot of the issue and the social equity movements of the day are about ownership and long-term disinvestment. Right. right. Which is like totally where we work, Krista. Like, you look at these boundary zones that were redlined 60 years ago or whatever, and the GI Bill, whatever, like got, you know, black folks get home from World War II and don't get access to a house when the guy that they were fighting with next to him that's white gets a house, mm-hmm. right? Those right. things are coming home to roost. And so you can see it on the map, and a lot of those areas on the map happen to be the areas where disinvestment has led to abandonment, has led to foreclosure, has led to land bank ownership. Right. Absolutely. And and so I feel like there's this like unique chance to like return ownership in a way. It's just an idea, right? Like, I don't know if there'd have to be like a lot of thinking and actually an initiative, like, but like an ownership initiative of properties that are currently publicly held that don't have an owner that are, you know, let's give them back and like get some entrepreneurial dollars pumped into that environment and get some business started. (laughs) Yeah, we we call that um, small scale development. That's how we think of it. Um, cool. I think it's I think it's adjacent to what you're saying. But one of the things our land bank has been working on for the past 18 months is small scale development. We worked with the Incremental Development Alliance. What we really wanted to do was tap into local folks who are interested in developing properties in neighborhoods that were tied to that neighborhood. So they would be investing. They would be learning some skills, right? And in the end, they would have a business or a house or some sort of asset, you know, that that they could then sell or they could build upon, but it would be keeping the money and the skills, you know, hopefully within that neighborhood. And so that turned out to be trickier than you would uh, maybe imagine. Um, But it's something that we're still really dedicated to. Because you're like, sorry, I want to hear more. I'm just like, you're doing the thing. The thing I just said that's happening. We're trying. (laughs) You know, we're trying. And COVID has really disrupted um, some of our plans because we don't know where we're going at this point, given all the uncertainty. But we we think that that's a really valuable thing that we could be doing for our communities. And we, we know that there's a housing shortage. We know that 
accessibility to housing is a problem and just housing choice. You know, not everybody wants a single family home. And I know that you know the data and you know the data in Calhoun County. A lot of our, you know, a lot of our housing choices are single family homes and not everybody wants that. So we've looked at um, duplexes and mansion style properties or single family homes with apartment above the garage, the old granny flat that was essentially outlawed by single family zoning, but makes tons of sense as far as having income coming in from your property, which sort of offsets your mortgage and helps during times of economic downturn like we have right now. So that's that's really what we've been working on for the last 18 months. And it's been it's been a lot of fun, but also there's just a lot more work to do. And it, it needs, like you said, that sort of entrepreneurial investment by other organizations. Yeah. All the black and brown communities, like there's amazing entrepreneurs within those those groups. And it's like, how do we incent the entrepreneurs to like build businesses off their ideas? And like, here's some property to go to go nail that, right? Like we got we got public sector support surrounding that, right? Right. I'm curious if you have like a case study story of of one that went well or one that went sideways or something that we could learn from an experience in in that thread. Do you have one? Um, I think. Our most successful stories come from the rehabilitation of houses and just really working with potential buyers. We did a home tour in our Washington Heights neighborhood, which has you know, been a very strong African-American neighborhood in the city of Battle Creek. We were able to rent a bus and take folks on a tour of all the homes in that neighborhood that had been rehabilitated through our program. And the really interesting thing for us was that there were a lot of family groups, grandparents and grandkids who purchased properties who had really strong ties to that community that rehabbed houses. But what we really want to do is take it from that rehab success story to infill housing or small node commercial redevelopment. And that's the jump that we're trying to make. And that's where we still need to do a little bit more work. And I think some of it is is building those skills and offering classes to folks in our community who are interested because the, the money side of those bigger projects is is more difficult. You know, that capital stack is more difficult. In a world where that initiative and those initiatives are well-resourced, what does it look like? I think what it looks like is that we start folks out in a process, we help them with pro formas. They become self-sustaining. We know we help them make sure and that this isn't just a land bank, but it's the economic development component for your community. We get them the support they need to get off the ground and then they run and hopefully they become ambassadors and they can help incubate other folks who are interested in doing it. I mean, it's been successful in other communities through the Incremental Development Alliance. We met folks that were doing this work in, in Texas and it's just amazing what he's been able to do by working with people from his own community who are interested and, in, you know, starting out small projects. And I, one of the other really important things that we learned is that you don't have to do it all from the get go, right? You can rehab a portion of, of your building and, and get it started and then move on as your income comes in. So you're not laying out a big chunk of change in the beginning. And so really thinking about redevelopment incrementally, is beneficial, I think, to our communities, to our staff. Um, so right now, we're when people call us, those are the kinds of conversations that we're having. You know, how can we help you build small successes into bigger successes? I love it. How does the how does the public sector start to reinvest 
in its citizens that have not been invested in in so long, right? Yes. And then how do you incent resources from the private sector where there's real private sector opportunity into the communities and into into ownership with the folks that are there um, and actually move it, move it all as, as a, as a unit, like build that, like start actually doing that. At Dynamo, we want to have integrated inter- information that's like distributed and everybody has the same sheet of music and you can seamlessly communicate with what's happening on this property, what's happening at this neighborhood, where is it going, where has it been? I, I feel like these types of initiatives, it's like, it's not just city hall anymore, right? No, no. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, you're trying to build trust and you're trying to bring diverse partners in and it's, you know, important that 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 that's a diverse group of people that not everybody looks the same and not everybody's doing the same thing but everybody believes in that community mission and i think that 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 drive to see positive actions and positive developments at the really at the neighborhood scale is something that we we need more of totally totally that's spot on i appreciate you i'm so thankful for you coming on I wonder if there's a. I wonder if there's anything that um, that you were hoping to say that that you didn't get out there. Maybe some closing thoughts. I think we're living in a very interesting time. As you said, there's all of these all of these different movements, and in the middle of a pandemic, and it almost seems to me like it's an opportunity to grow something new and to build something new and to do things differently. And I'm very excited that there are these conversations going on all over the country about how we might do this. I hope that we can find the momentum to do it here in Calhoun County, but really connect and bring some of those movements together for positive change and to break down some of the cycles that we've seen over the years, you know, high eviction rates, tax foreclosure, loss of property, how we can be smarter in our intervention and preventative so that we're not reacting. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. And and hopefully things like this, this podcast and others can get the word out into the public sector and, you know, maybe foundations, philanthropies, whatever. So they finance these ideas, right? Like we need, right. there's public sector organizations that are like the Calhoun County Land Bank and land banks in Michigan that are well positioned to execute these activities and are well threaded into these communities have great access in relationships with the with the people in the communities, but it, it needs resourced, right? Like we need resources, but those dollars and the folks that control those dollars, they also need to to have a little faith. Um, it might not be that everything is figured out in the get-go because we're doing something new, right? But yep. they, they need to to decide that it's worth investing in this. And you know, part of the thing with land banks is that we have to build and adjust all the time. And that's really how we started out. And it was uncomfortable at first if something didn't work out. You thought, oh my gosh, I did it wrong. Well, we didn't do it wrong. We just didn't have all the data. And now we're smarter. And now we're going to adjust and we're going to build a better program. People need to get comfortable with that too, I think. Absolutely. You got it. You got it. Awesome. Thank you, Krista. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve. And special thanks to Krista for joining us today.